First and foremost, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we, myself, and my guests record today's podcast. I extend respect and gratitude to the elders past, present, and emerging of those nations, and to all Aboriginal peoples listening today. Always was, always will be. Hello and welcome, I'm Timberlina and you're listening to Yas Queen, the podcast where we talk about everything without knowing anything about everything. Yas Queen is delighted to have Daniel McCarthy join us for Queer Chat. Daniel is the Regional Manager for Acorn Hunter. He has a professional background in clinical nursing, health service management and population health and has a post-grad qualification in community development and international development. Dan has a passion for rural and regional healthcare delivery and enjoys working closely with our community at Grassroots to improve health, well-being and happiness. In this episode, we discuss topics of growing up queer, living overseas, HIV and everything in between. So let's get into this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yas Queen. I'm so excited for our next guest um, and I hope you are too. So I'd like to welcome Dan. Welcome Dan. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, To start off, can I get you to let everyone know your name, where you're based and what you're doing and learn a little bit about you? Fantastic. So I'm Daniel McCarthy. I'm the regional manager for the Hunter branch of Acon Health. Uh, and ACON is a community organisation that supports the health and well-being of the LGBTIQ community uh, across New South Wales. Um, so I'm based here in Newcastle and uh, originally from rural Tasmania actually. So I grew up in Tassie, yeah. Tassie boy by uh, origin, but um, spent a lot of my time in early and later adulthood, uh, travelling around different parts of the country and overseas so i spent a good stint living in thailand as well um, a bit over three years in the early 2000s but i've been based here in newcastle for just on five years now Um, i met my now husband five years ago who was from newcastle and i migrated north and um, haven't regretted that decision yeah yeah (laughs) everyone loves newcastle oh it's a great place yeah (laughs) Yeah. um (laughs) I must say, like, because I grew up in, as everyone knows, I grew up out west and then I moved to Newcastle and I would not change that at all. So, um, so excited to have you here today. Um, So, I want to touch base about growing up in Tassie. Mm -hmm. I haven't interviewed anyone from Tassie yet, so this is exciting. Um, What was it like growing up in Tassie um, as a queer person? Yeah, look... Like most things in life, um, there are pros and cons. I wouldn't trade in for anything my childhood growing up in Tasmania. I really value that. Um, I had a really uh, loving family and uh, a supportive group of friends, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and if anyone's been to Tassie, and particularly rural Tassie, you'll, you'll know how beautiful it is in terms of the natural beauty of the place. So really thankful for that. But, you know, we also need to recognise, um, I can talk about my experience, but it's often 
uh, can be a common experience of other queer community members living in rural areas. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, that was in the 80s and 90s. Um, my time growing up, and particularly my adolescence, um, was around that time in Tasmania. So I think um, one thing that I sort of later come to understand and recognise is that particularly at that time, there wasn't a particularly um, large amount of um, influence from queer communities. So the queer community wasn't really visible at all yeah. um, in, in Tassie at that time. So when you're young and you're coming to terms with your identity and your sexuality, you've only got the messaging that you've got access to in those areas to help form your opinion about yourself. Yeah. Um, so for me... Um, that was probably more overwhelmingly negative in terms of the messaging that I was exposed to. Um, if anyone can remember back to sort of the Grim Reaper ads that were around in, in the 80s, um, for those who don't know it, they were, um, it was a particularly, um, what would we say? <laughs> it was an interesting approach to a public health campaign in the 80s, which yeah. was particularly around um, HIV. But it was a highly stigmatising um, public health initiative by the then government, the federal government. Um, and what that campaign in particular did was to frame homosexuality as this cultural and societal evil um, that was responsible for you know, the deaths of children and families. So um, that was an example of some of the really strong negative messaging that, that was out there. Um, so I think... Um, you know, if that's balanced by some really positive um, exposure to queer community, then that, that's okay. But I probably didn't have that growing up. Yeah. Um, you know, again, within my family, and my family are really loving, both my, my, my father and my sisters and my, my mum are all really loving people. Um, but again, um, you know, they were on a journey as well, coming to understand... Um, their ideas around sexuality and, yeah. and what they perceive that to be, um, and, and particularly coming through from my father from his generation, that that was a challenge and it was certainly a journey that he had to go on um, over a course of a few years. Yeah. So, look, in, in some ways, I think, um, particularly the adolescent mind is is really kind of vulnerable to those the messages that we're exposed to and I'm sure you can relate to that too yeah of course of course so when it like it's great because I know so many queer people out there they don't have that support from their family mm. um which is can which totally sucks but um nowadays there's a lot more resources out there and a lot more queer focused things that they yeah. can go to and attend which is amazing but back in the 80s and 90s they was nothing like that, so yes. you're very lucky to have that. Did you have any queer friends as well turning to Tassie, or...? <laughs> Look, that, no, not really. <laughs> I, I did have... My, my longest um, relationship in high school was with um, a lovely woman. She was a lesbian and I was a gay guy, so... <laughs> but we both, we both went out. So, Do you call that each other's beard? <laughs> we, we have laughed about it after the fact that it was probably a natural pairing for us at the time. But I didn't have anyone to talk to, no. There was um, nobody that was out at that point among my peer groups. Um, and, and that was interesting because I think one of the other experiences of, of queer people growing up is 
that drive to try and fit in mm-hmm. because I think for me I felt I felt wrong I felt shame I felt I was different and yeah. I felt that I wasn't going to be accepted yeah. by my, my community and the world for who I was um, so I felt that I had to go to extra lengths to fit in yeah. um, with my peer groups um, and, and for me in those adolescent years I mean that was very much in terms of getting into drinking alcohol and smoking and smoking marijuana because at the time that was that's what you needed to do to be one of the cool kids and to be part of the group yeah so I was really kind of driven by that way of thinking yeah I probably wasn't aware of it at the time I think it's not until you look back um, at some of the choices that you made and what they were all about yeah Um, but certainly internally for me it was that real feeling of inadequacy and shame and that I had to work so much harder than anybody else to be seen as equal. Yeah. Um, Which would have put so much stress onto you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my mental health at the time wasn't wonderful. Yeah. Um, and again, I couldn't probably pinpoint it exactly to uh, until later in life, but it was around coming to understand my sexual orientation and identity. But, yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, I had troubles with anxiety and depression, um, mm. which has, have stayed with me throughout life. Yeah. Um, and again, sort of linking back to that perfectionistic behaviour, that's something that I still struggle with because, um, and I know talking to my peers now um, from queer community, that's a very common experience is that um, we can often end up with this lifelong drive to try and exceed expectations. Yeah. Um, and it's linked to that, for me, it's linked to that deep-seated feeling of yeah. unworthiness. Um, but even, you know, 25 years later, um, it's still as part of my subconscious yeah. uh, mind. It's not, not, not a part of my affirming identity or what I think about myself now, but it's part of my subconscious. Yeah. Mm. Wow. That's... Very full on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, and, and I don't mean to, 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 to paint a negative pitch. I mean, it was a challenging time. Oh, yeah. Um, you've got to remember that um, in Tasmania, homosexuality wasn't decriminalised until 1997. Yeah. Um, which was quite late. Um, so, you, so late, yeah. Yeah, so, so you not only had negative portrayal of gay people in media, you had negative... Um, portrayals within your cultural and your peer groups but then you also had the government saying that you know this is uh, an unacceptable way to be in the world um, and you would be considered a criminal um, to have that homosexual identity yeah so really that's a lot of strong messaging coming at you yeah Uh, (laughs) so scary it's just like shows that we're so lucky now yes so so lucky yeah yeah um it's, and so many people would not know that either. No, I think that, um, look, in some ways I think we've come so far, but yeah. we've still got a way to go. Mm. I mean, um, I think that youth now through the work of organisations like ACON do have a lot more support. Um, they have some specialised services to access um, and that positive media portrayal as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that that probably puts people... Uh, particularly youth now, off on a bit of a better footing. That's not to say the journey is really any easier, no, because yeah. that 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 feeling of shame and unworthiness is, I think, one of the 
most common human experiences to have. Yep, um, I agree. And that, you know, LGBTQ people, that that is a core theme to our experience. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. No. And on that note, I'll put in in the show notes links to the ACOM website and everything like that. So absolutely, um, people can definitely reach out. Yes, and um, to our mental health support lines as well. Yeah. Yeah. My next, we've got some notes here, everybody, <laughs> just so we can keep track. Um, one that's really standing out to me right yeah. now is the underground gay venues. <laughs> I don't know about this. One, because it sounds really interesting and exciting for me, because um, yeah. I perform in venues. So, um, can you give us like a little bit of a background on the underground gay venues? Yeah, so I think if anyone growing up in the, well, even the 70s through to the 90s, I mean, this was all pre-date, well, pre-mobile phones, so it was pre-dating apps. Um, yeah. So your options for... For, for me, for meeting guys, were to go to a, a designated um, a gay club, yeah. okay, which there were very few and far between. So I moved from the rural northwest of Tasmania to the Big Smoke, which was Hobart, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and in Hobart, there was, there was one gay club called The Cage, um, so even the name was just, wasn't, you know, all that um, inviting. Yes. So, so The Cage, um, I think it was open two nights a week. It might have been Friday and, and Saturday night. And it was in the basement of this old department store in the city centre. Um, and you kind of go down these three steps, of three flights of stairs into this dark yeah. world beneath. So it was all very clandestine, really. And again, remembering that at the time, homosexuality was still illegal um, when I was going to the cage. Um, But that was really your only safe option in terms of going to an environment where you knew that people in there were queer identifying. So um, I remember being so nervous the first time I went, um, you know, to, to a gay club, just, you know, that not knowing what to expect and you know but I think it was just such an eye-opener to go into a room of people who you could identify with yeah um you know but at the same time it was also a very anxious experience because you know what used to happen was the police would often sort of just be hanging around the streets outside the entrance into that so it was probably about a maybe a one and a half to two block walk to the taxi rank so You'd come out of the cage at the end of the evening and need to go grab a taxi. Um, but you was a very visible police presence there in terms of intimidation. So they wouldn't really hassle you too much, but they made it known that they knew who you were and where you were going. Yeah. So, you know, there was all of this anxiety um, wrapped up, even in just accessing one gay venue um, yeah. to, to try and be part of community. Um you know, but, and I think that highlights a, a big difference between now and then as well, is that, you know, if you're using a dating app now, you know, it's highly, highly uncommon that you'd be targeted by somebody who's not queer friendly. You know, you know that most of the people you're going to be communicating with are like-minded yep. and it's a, a typically safe way to, to meet people. But I think um, prior to those opportunities, it was difficult because you might have an interest in somebody and you wouldn't know 
if yeah. they were gay or not, um, yeah. for, in my instance, or whether they were out or not. Um, you know, so I was always terrified of approaching um, guys that I might be interested in, in the fear that they might not be gay and that there would be a reprisal for, um, you know, showing an interest in them. So Yeah. Wow. That's scary. Yeah, it is. And look, I think... Um, so, uh, so I think technology has helped us out there, but yeah. I would probably hazard a guess, though, that in many rural and regional settings, like like those in in the Hunter and beyond that we provide services to, is that it, it is probably um, a similar experience, particularly in, in small towns, perhaps. Mm. Um, again, where um, you know people might not be out within their community because they don't feel comfortable. Um, so that can be a real barrier to making connections. I think, yeah, uh, even today. Um, but look, you know, that's, that was just, just our way of, of, of being there. Yeah. And, you know, and I think you, again, sort of coming back to around the mental health consequences as well, but, you know, I think there were a couple of times that I was assaulted when I was in my late teens, you know, just for being different, yeah. you know, or looking at somebody the wrong way or, you know, Someone probably had a, a feeling that I was a member of the queer community and that was enough for them to, to want to lash out. So I think that that, again, sort of really reinstilled this sense of fear and unworthiness um, and that I wasn't safe in yeah. the world, that I couldn't be myself in the world and feel physically safe. Yeah. Um, you know, and that took quite a few years to kind of work through and um, I'm sure that, you know, any of our... Um, listeners who have experienced any sort of verbal or, or or physical attacks due to their sexuality can relate to that. Yeah. Um, and again, if if this podcast raises any issues, that please jump on our website and have a look at our mental health support lines. Yes. But um, yes, yeah, so, but that's that's all part of part of what it was at the mm. time um, growing up in the country. Yeah. Um, and just to say, so I don't demonise <laughs> rural, rural, rural communities, but um, a lot of the fear that I had was at the time in adolescence was highly unwarranted because I think when I did come out to my family and then my community, which is probably late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of the fears that I had were unwarranted. So I did see a lot of support within my family and my my extended family, within my friends and yeah. members of the community. So I think it's often, well, for me anyway, it was that internalised fear that I wouldn't be accepted. Yeah. Um, and often what people will say maybe carelessly, if you're somebody that has a careless comment about uh, a gay person or the queer community, um, their intent behind that may not actually be be harm, and if you actually have a conversation with that person, um, they'll probably be mortified to to know the impact that those kind of comments can have on people. So, um, you know, I had no hesitation returning to Tasmania when I was a bit older, um, mm. and when living and working there, and I was very well accepted by my community. Yeah. And in some ways, I think sort of the the working class communities are, are some of the most uh, accepting um, cultures. I would 100% agree with that. Um, for me, like, because obviously growing up out west, um, and then I didn't come out till we moved to Newcastle, but what I've been saying ever since I started doing drag was I need to go to 
rural communities and show them that you can do anything and be yeah. anything. And yeah. um, it's crazy now because all my shows out west sell out within mm. a matter of days, which is yeah. amazing. And it just shows that there is a lot of queer communities that need people out there to entertain and um, have that. So mm. I think it's amazing when you get to go back and visit a hometown and everyone's so proud of you and Oops. all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's really good. Yeah. Um, all right. So what has changed for people coming out in rural and regional areas now? Yeah, look, I think we've, we've covered off on a bit of it, but, you know, it's a, in some ways a lot has changed, in other ways not a lot has changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think that there uh, is a lot more positive representation of queer community now. Um, like you just said, with, you know, you going out to do shows, I mean, that's a fantastic way to, to be really visible. Um, I think you've got a lot more positive portrayals in media, um, yeah. you know, both fiction and non-fiction media on... On, on TV and streaming and, and so on. So I think that there is more access to positive affirmation around sexuality and yep. gender diversity, which is fantastic. I think that that is really good. Um, I think that we also need to recognise that there there's often a gap in terms of specialist LGBTQ services in rural regional, and so I don't think that that has changed a lot since the time that I was going through that part of my life. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember going to family planning was the only option to, to go to and yeah. um, great group of people, but not, not equipped to understand the queer experience. Yeah. Um, I think I was given a 10 page booklet on essentially how to have gay sex and that was it. <laughs> it was very, very limited. Um, but, um, so I think that Whilst those services are probably still lacking in rural regional, I think one of the offspins from COVID has been some better uptake in telehealth as well. So I think that there are now some opportunities for queer identifying people in remote areas to link into specialist services and whether that's um, care coordination or counselling or whatever level of support that they need. So I think that that's a good opportunity. Yeah. Um, I'd encourage people from the regions to, to take that up. Um, because that can be a bit of a, a leveller as well, and getting that health equity between the services that I could access if I was living in Metro Sydney versus if I'm living in Moree or, or Orange. So yeah. um, I think that that's really good. I think stigma um, and discrimination is still present um, in our communities, but you know I think it's in pockets. I think it's less than it was 25 years ago, which mm. is good. I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and I also feel that you've got a lot of people, probably of my generation, who would have left their hometown as teenagers and made a life for themselves elsewhere, often in the big cities, but are now at a point in their life that they're returning back to their home communities. So they're bringing that diversity back into the regions across across the country and, yeah. um, and raising families and a whole new generation um, as well. So that's... I think um, also having a really good impact. Yeah. Mm. Um, and of course, ACON doing, well, before COVID, yes. we're doing their outreach programs and stuff like that, which is yeah. really important. Um, yeah. Uh, so, because I really want to do, go out with the ACON team and do yes. stuff with them. We want to go with you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we can, are you, going, are, you go, are you back out doing no, stuff? No, not quite. So look, um, 
Uh, it's such a privilege working for Acon, particularly in the regional context. So even though we're called Acon Hunter, we cover Central Coast, New England, all the way up to Tamworth, Tenterfield, Moree, um, and then out as far as um, Bathurst and, and Orangeon. That way. So it's a huge area yep. that we cover. Um, so we were doing quite regular sort of physical outreach visits that would go and support um, local queer community organisations with their efforts. Um, yeah. We support the um, Pride events that happen in our regional centres um, and then obviously now particularly promoting our um, client services which are off now available via telehealth. So, um, you know, it has pulled back a bit since COVID but we're, we're transitioning to a lot of online content. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the kind of peer education and health promotion outreach that we used to do we're now offering online. Yeah, and we're continuing to kind of make those connections to make that accessible. Um, so stay tuned as well as those opportunities go to the regions. Yeah, um, yeah. So make sure you're following Acon for all their updates, yes. of course. Um, all right, this is where it gets really fun about you. <laughs> um, we get to learn about you uh, um, learning to live in your truth, I guess, and three years in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us all about Thailand. This is fun. It is fun. That's probably one of my most fond memories of my life, to be honest, those those three and a bit years. But look, I've always kind of had the travel bug and just a real fascination with other cultures and other people and the way people live and the experience of other people. It just really fascinates me. Yeah. Um, And there's so much to learn um, if we step outside our own little worldview (laughs) which is great and and look and i've always had a real interest in particularly countries that have got sort of a strong buddhist foundation as well because um again i think through my experience growing up i kind of turned inward a bit so in a positive way i probably developed my sense of spirituality and asked a lot of those deeper questions about life yeah when i was a teenager and going through the coming out experience so that kind of linked into my drive to want to go to thailand as well um, I first went when I was 17, I just joined an intrepid tour and we, yep. we travelled overland, so this was the late 90s, that's a lot different to what it is now, but we travelled from Bangkok to Singapore and down through the south of Thailand and, and Malaysia and just fell in love with the people and the culture and, and the food, it was, it was fantastic and um, that was the first time that I came out to, to people as well, so my tour group um, I came out to. Yeah. No, for me that was a safe thing to do because these were a group of ten people that I probably wasn't going to see again. Yeah. Uh, so, but oh, let's just try it out here and yeah. see how that goes. Um, and I had a positive experience, which was great. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm digressing there. So, look, I went back in the early 2000s, like 2001. Yeah. I went back to Thailand. I really wanted to go and get some new experience, so I went to teach English as a second language mm-hmm. and didn't have really any plan and not a lot of money um, and just showed up and wanted to see where life would take me. But it was a fantastic experience in so many ways and it really helped me to grow. I think um, part of what I really wanted to do was to step away from my life of privileged. So I was really aware that I was this white educated Australian guy from a good family, no experience of poverty, had it pretty easily in terms of material success. So I kind of felt a bit guilty about that in Mm. some ways and still do um, and felt that I had so much to learn from people who 
living a lot less and haven't had the opportunities for me. So that was, you know, a, a key motivating factor as well. Um, it was, in terms of linking it to, look, it's interesting. I'm really glad I had the experience in the sense that it gave me an understanding what it means to be an immigrant. Yeah. Um, I became the culturally and linguistically diverse person yeah. when living in Thailand, <laughs> yeah. um, which was an awesome experience to have. And I really I encourage youth to, if they've got an interest in travel, go somewhere, anywhere in the world that is the opposite to what your experience is, because yeah. um, it's, it's just amazing. But I've got such empathy and um, for, for people in Australia from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Yeah. It is really hard when you show up in a country, um, often where your education is not recognised, you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, everything is foreign. It's a really overwhelming experience initially. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, and you make so many mistakes <laughs> without knowing that you're making mistakes. Uh, you know, so I think in that first year being that I caused offence and I made a fool of myself and... But, you know, that was all a part of what it's like being somebody, you feel a bit like a fish out of water for a while. But I think what it makes you do is to look at parts of yourself and your skills that you you might not have looked at before. So you Mm. develop a resilience and you develop new skills um, and you grow. It's a a real pressure environment to have personal growth, um, which was fantastic. I mean, one of the challenges I had initially was the language, because if anyone's been to Thailand, it's um, they don't use an English script, they use their own alphabet, which has got like 56 words, 56 different characters, which yeah. is just insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a phonetic language as well, so you can have one word and you pronounce it with five different tones, Yeah. and it will mean five different things. Which is really difficult to learn if you're not used to speaking. Yeah, right. So I think for the first year, I used to go into 7-Eleven and I would buy a bottle of milk for my tea yeah. um, to have a cup of tea in the morning. And milk wasn't that common in Thailand because it's um, not really part of the diet. So yeah. 7-Eleven was about the only place you could get it. And But I needed the big bottle. So I'd always go in and ask for a big bottle of milk. Um, but the word for milk is the same as the word for a woman's breasts. In <laughs> depending on how you which tone you use, yeah. So, I think for the first year, I'd go in and ask them if they had any big bottles of milk, and they would be laughing hysterically at me. And it wasn't until about a year later, I went with a friend, and they said, You know, you just ask whether they've got big breasts. <laughs> oh, so, so for the first year, I was asking all these poor 7-Eleven attendants whether they had big breasts. Uh, so that was hilarious. But they would still give you milk. They would still give me. They would figure out what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I didn't get a slap. So I think that was. Um, they had good humour about it, which was nice. Imagine, I feel like so many tourists would go in and make probably the same mistakes. So they'd probably get it a couple of times a day. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but I think in, in talking about language while we're on that, yeah. what I found really interesting around sexuality, so that was still in a phase in my life where I was still not quite comfortable with who I was, mm. um, but it's amazing the impact of language. So what I hadn't realised is that in English, a lot of the 
or in any language, words have loaded meaning mm. and they have emotions attached to them. Yeah. Um, so even saying out loud in my adolescence that I was gay or homosexual, or that my partner was a man, you know, all that vocabulary, the queer vocabulary, you know, it was a cause of anxiety. You know, even just using that vocabulary in English mm. until you become comfortable with yourself is quite challenging. Yeah. Um, but what I found when I went to Thailand and I was using that vocabulary in a different language, the emotion wasn't there, so the anxiety wasn't there. Um, so psychologically, it was this really freeing experience because suddenly I could openly describe who I was and who I was attracted to, yeah. and I didn't have this internal response of fear associated mm. with it. So I found moving to time was really liberating. Um, and Thailand as a culture, so it's about 99% Buddhist, yeah. um, um, which not always, but it generally is a very tolerant um, cultures that are founded on Buddhism, not always, um, and in the and there are a lot of positive even the late nineties and early two thousand there are a lot of positive media portrayals around gay people, uh, and particularly transgender people. So um, transgender people in Thailand are often um, in fictional media, so they're often stars on soap operas and game shows, or they're presentators, yeah. and they're actually really celebrated in Thailand. Yeah. Um, you know, so the Thai word um, is gatoi, um, and there's this real celebration of transgender culture in the media. Yeah. Um, so again, that was really freeing. So I went from a place where I felt, within my culture, I felt very anxious and oppressed, and then to a culture which was completely foreign, but I felt really liberated in terms of my sexuality. Yeah. Which was just a really great experience to have. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really, really interesting though. It is. Yeah. 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 And something unexpected. Yeah. Um, no, it's just, I love that the language, which I've never thought about before, mm. can change so much. Yeah. Um, which is really, really cool. Because I've always wanted to learn another language and yep. I just have too many things on my plate. Um, but yep. maybe I should really take the time out to learn another language just like that. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Can you speak fluent Thai? Is it Thai? Yeah, yeah not anymore. I mean, I've, um, it was 2004 that I came back. Yeah. So, look, I'm sure I'd pick it up again quickly, but yep. like most things, if you stop using it, um, yeah, it drops off a bit. I've, I've got enough time to get myself by, yeah. but I wouldn't call myself fluent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, did you, were you dating anyone over there? Sorry? Were you dating anyone over there? Yeah, yeah, I was. So that was Can an ask that? <laughs> Ken, that was a really interesting experience as well. So, um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll just talk about the, the one relationship that I had, which yeah. was. The meaningful one. So I did, I met, actually, ironically, it was my father <laughs> that introduced me to my longer term partner in Thailand. So <laughs> my parents came over for a visit, it's been 2001, um, and we were staying on Kopipi Island in the south. Um, mm -hmm. And this guy who came in, who was our waiter and was bringing us drinks into our bungalow and that. Um, and my dad just made this offhanded comment, said, oh, you know, he looks like a nice guy, um, and well, I think my, my dad was lovely, he wasn't good with words though, I think, you know, he looks like one of yours, I think, <laughs> I think is what he said. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so, you know, like, an amazing human being, okay, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> um, 
and I probably, if, if not for my father's highlight, I probably wouldn't have reached out. But I, yeah, he had an amazing nature. We just had this connection. Yeah. Um, I was living in Bangkok at the time and he was living on site at the hotel. So look, we exchanged each other's numbers and didn't think too much more about it. And then he just turned up out of the blue about four weeks later. Um, said, hi, I'm at the train station in Bangkok. Can I come and stay for a few days? I was like, hi. <laughs> What was your name again? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, look, um, that was amazing. I mean, we, we hit it off. Um, it obviously it was a multicultural language, sorry, a multicultural relationship, yeah. uh, which was again a learning experience and took some time. So we had very different cultural upbringing so we had to had a lot of misunderstandings early in the relationship just in terms of our approach to problem solving or cultural norms and that yeah um you know but we developed a real connection and sense of love for each other um and we were together for for almost three years about one year into a relationship um we found out that he was hiv positive um which you know, it was a really challenging time for us. Yeah. So, again, we're talking early 2000s. So, there was still, you know, stigma around HIV was improving a little bit back home in Australia at the time. But in Thailand, and I'd and I hazard a guess that it hasn't changed a lot now, there is a huge amount of stigma um, associated with, with HIV. Yeah. So, there's a, there's a lot of fear within the culture and a lot of misunderstanding about what HIV means. Um, so that was a really challenging experience because, you know, we're in love and we're committed to each other and then suddenly we had this diagnosis that we had to deal with and, and reconcile with our relationship. Yeah. And look, for a while things went okay. We would, we managed to find one clinician, um, at that time I was living in the south in Phuket, we managed to find one clinician who, um, was providing HIV care and support because a lot of uh, hospitals and clinicians then just wouldn't even see people with HIV. Yeah. Essentially, if you, you had a positive diagnosis, then you know you were told, oh, look, you might die in six months or you might die in a couple of years. Off you go and good luck with that. So it was a really challenging time, yeah. um, which we know is for our listeners is not the experience now. We yep. know that if you... Um, happen to have a HIV diagnosis that you can, um, with the right treatment and support, go on to live a full and normal life. Yeah. Um, just like anybody else. But, you know, at the time, of course, this was prior to a lot of the, the, the effective HIV medicines being available as well. So options were much more limited. Yeah. But also in, in Thailand, um, they weren't available. So you couldn't physically get even the HIV medicines that were available at the time in the 2000s so Thailand you just couldn't access them at all um, and and a huge amount of family stigma associated with that as well so you would essentially be disowned from your family if you were to disclose uh, HIV diagnosis yeah. um, as well and then employment as well was quite quite challenging so Look, initially, um, you know, I was just monitoring um, his um, CD4 count, which is around, essentially it demonstrates how advanced the disease is and where it would tick over from being HIV positive into having um, uh, the bigger impacts of the AIDS virus itself in terms of the disease. 
at some point, you know, that started to trail off, so we could see that he was getting a bit sicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then we had to face some really hard realities. So at that time, I hadn't gone to university yet, so I was still untrained. I had no home or, po- or you know, savings. You know, we, we basically lived week by week, as, yeah. as most people do in the world. Um, and we come to realise that his options were to either go to another country where he could get the care for his HIV that he needed to live a full and happy life, yeah. or stay in Thailand and essentially suffer the common fate, which was usually once you became too unwell to work, you were often disowned by your community, and then the temples were often the only place that would take people in. So. There are still a lot of HIV respites run by the Buddhist temples in Thailand today, but they were they were your two options. You you leave and you go overseas, or you stay and, and, and suffer a poor outcome. Um, we tried to uh, get successful immigration to Australia, um, but at, at, again, at the time in Australia, that was essentially impossible because one of the entry requirements was to have a HIV test. So you had to prove that you didn't have HIV. Um, You know, I think the Department of Immigration would say that they wouldn't deliberately exclude anyone from HIV, but essentially they were doing an assessment to see what that person's burden would be on the healthcare system. So essentially, um, you know, you... um, there was no way they were going to get success. So we did the preliminary assessment, yeah. disclosed the HIV diagnosis. I had no financial base or income back in Australia, so it was not going to be possible for for us to return together to Australia for for try to so for him to get the care that he needed. Um, but look, he had some really good and generous friends from Belgium, um, yeah. and. He was able to um, take up an opportunity to immigrate to Belgium, which I I couldn't do either because um, again I didn't have the skills that Belgium wanted in terms of an Australian immigrating to Belgium. So I didn't I wasn't within a highly skilled profession at the time. I was a, yeah. an English language teacher, which um, they wasn't part of their criteria for immigration. Yeah. So look, we, we essentially made that, you know, whilst we're in love and, and if it weren't for the diagnosis, I think at the time that it occurred, we would have remained in that relationship. Um, we had to face that we couldn't be together anymore. So he had to immigrate to Belgium um, yeah. and went on to live and still lives a very happy and, and healthy life, receiving the health care that he needs. Um, but it was a really hard time because, you know, essentially... No one wants their relationship to end prematurely um, through circumstance. But it was the choice between either our relationship ends or we stay together and he dies within a few years without the right kind of support and treatment. So yeah. when you look at it that way, it's, it's not much of a choice to make. But um, yeah, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a challenging time. Yeah, very. Wow. But, um, and look, I think that was the time that, because I had the interest in Buddhism as well, I think yeah. when Chai went to um, to Belgium, well, sorry, just before Chai went to Belgium, I um, 
ordained as a Buddhist monk yeah. and went into first a, a monastery in the city in Phuket and then up into the mountains into a, into a smaller retreat, um, which I think was the right thing to do at the time. It was something that I had a, an interest in. Yeah. Uh, it's quite common in Thailand, um, if not expected, that uh, most men um, before the age of 25 will ordain as a Buddhist monk for a period of time as part of their spiritual education. Yeah. Um, clearly a, a gender bias there around <laughs> the, the expectations, but um, certainly um, there is a pathway for women in Thailand as well. Um, you know, to to enter into monastery uh, monastic life if they want, but again, that was um, a really interesting experience, and probably was a good time to do it whilst mm. I was still grappling with the end of the relationship and wanting to explore my spiritual side even further, um, which was great. And then, did you? So you stayed in Thailand. Yes, yeah, so I stayed in Thailand. Um, so I was, I was a dangerous monk for about four months, yeah. um, and then in, in that time, a few things had happened back home. My father was unwell. My uncle had died. Um, so I decided I kind of needed to go back to Australia. Yeah. Um, and initially, it was just look, I'll go back for a few months and see and see and, and go from there. But um, yeah, I think the. The experience in the in the monastery kind of prepared me well to go back into the next phase in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I found really interesting is so when you become a Buddhist monk, one of the things that they do is they essentially strip away your identity, mm-hmm. and they do that literally and figuratively. So you you cut all your hair off and you shave it back to the skull. They cut your um, eyebrows off as well, which is a really interesting look. <laughs> um, just, just for the ordination procedure, and then your eyebrows yeah. can grow back, but you've yeah. got to keep your hair short. Um, they take away all your choices, essentially, which is a really interesting experience. So simple things like having control over what you wear. So when you become a monk, you've got uh, a, one set of saffron robes that you wear day in, day out, which is really good for getting ready in the morning because you don't have to try and decide what you're going to wear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but it's interesting that the way your hair looks, the way your face looks, the type of clothes that you wear are all part of how you see yourself, yeah. your identity as, as to who you are. And part of the Buddhist teachings is around learning to strip all that back to say, well, what's behind all that? Mm. What's, what's at that core or the centre of what you would construct to be your identity? Um, you know, and, and then you take away your access to people as well. So um, there are a few different uh, different uh, sects of Buddhism, but in Thailand um, it's mainly Theravada Buddhism, which is probably a little bit more strict in terms of the level of engagement with community. Yeah. So there are clear lines, like a, a, a male monk can't be alone in the, in, in the room with a, a female community member. Um and you can't, you physically can't touch. So there's, you can't physically touch anyone else who essentially isn't a monk. So you yeah. you lose that physical contact. Yeah. Um, you can't just pick up the phone and have a chat to your friend from down the road because that's not seen as part of what you would do. Yeah. So it was. So you yeah you lose your clothes, you lose your hair, 
you lose your contact with people who again help form your identity um i was gonna say something else there i forgot you lose your name um because they give you a new name yeah. when you go in yeah. so um which is a really interesting experience well because they work out what your name is based on when you were born and all these other sort of astrological stuff which I didn't wasn't aware of which is really interesting that is super interesting yeah so I think my name became Jaranatomo which is quite a mouthful yeah <laughs> Jaranatomo um yeah and and they take away a lot of your choice so you you can't choose what you're going to eat so you you only eat what you're given in arms so arms are, is what you, is what you collect when you go out begging for food essentially so yeah you know, monastic life, you kind of get up about four o'clock, you go to the temple, you do chanting and prayers for about an hour or so. Then without any shoes, you grab your, your bowl and you walk the streets. Um, and we are in Thailand, anyone who wants to give food and drink to the monks will just stand outside their house. Um, yeah. And then they pop the food into your bowl. It might be a little bag of curry or a little bit of rice. or um, <laughs> It was interesting after I, people got to know me in the community, I st- started getting all of these stereotypical Western foods offered to me. <laughs> I'd like to get a can of Coke and a chocolate bar. And I think I got some KFC one day or something. But, uh, so they must have thought, well, this, this foreign monk can't eat our Thai curries. We're going to give him, the, give him some foreign food. So that was, that was fascinating. But anyway. I love the KFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, we all drink Coke and KFC. Um, but, um, yeah, so you collect that. You do a prayer for them, wishing them good luck in life, and then you go back. And then all the monks would put their food in the centre of the table. And, again, there's more prayers, more chanting, and then you practice mindful meditation while you eat your food. Yeah. Um, but you don't get a choice of... You get you eat what you get given, yeah. essentially. Um, and, you know, in the city monastery, you eat twice a day, so you eat in the morning about... Uh, eight and then you eat a, no it's a bit earlier than that sorry it's about seven and then you eat again at about 11.30 and then after lunch you can't have anything to eat or drink other than water um, when I went to the mountain monastery that was stricter so I could only eat once a day so I'd have a meal at about eight o'clock in the morning and then nothing but water until eight o'clock the next day um, and that's all around becoming familiar with hunger and yeah. the craving that comes with that food so it's part of your training yeah um, but um so i think coming back to identity it was a really interesting it was an interesting experience on many levels but in terms of identity um who you were kind of ceases to exist a little mm-hmm. bit and you're just kind of left with the essence of of who you are mm. um and your perception of yourself does change a little bit um yeah you know i did still feel a sense of my gender i certainly still retained my sexuality um and my way of viewing the world i guess that was mm. my my core nature was still there but the identity as daniel had really kind of dissolved mm. um which is quite a liberating experience actually yeah and then coming home how was that? That was really hard because um, 
it was it was it was like a culture shock coming yeah. back into my culture. So yeah. I'd been away a bit over three years. I'd literally been out of the monastery, I think, for a week before I jumped on the plane to come back to Tassie. I think it was the middle of winter as well, so it was freezing. Freezing. <laughs> um, and it was kind of like this. Well, it was it was a real experience of grief because this life that I'd had had just ended. Yeah. Um, you know, my relationship had ended with my partner. Um, when I entered the monastery, I didn't know whether it was going to be for three months or for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, you know, that experience had ended. Um, so I had to come back and then find my place in the world again. Yeah. Um, and it probably took me a good year before I started to feel a little bit more at home. Yeah. And interestingly, um, a lot of the fears and anxieties I had as an adolescent... Yeah sort of came back to me a bit I think there's this I think it's very true if you go back to a place or an environment or a setting where that experience had happened mm. in the past that can bring it all up again so I wasn't prepared for that either so I found that um, I was again less comfortable with my sexuality and about being openly gay um, even now that I was in I would have been in my mid-twenties by then yeah um, so that was unexpected and interesting yeah. As well. Um, yeah. So it's like just, you've come out and found yourself and now you're back in the closet. It was, of. it yeah. was, yeah, it was. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to go back in the closet. Yeah. No. <laughs> Especially after all that amazing stuff in Thailand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, and now you're here living in Newcastle? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Sitting in this meeting room. <laughs> um... Which brings us to um, your current marriage, mm-hmm. um, which, going off your notes, I love its culture shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of a theme happening here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great, though. Um, so, living, learning, and loving in an interracial marriage in Australia. Yes. Um, one of the first stop points I love that you've written is giving up on love. Yeah. Um, which I, you hear this a lot though, because yeah, a yeah. lot of people just give up and then and next they, f- they find it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I highly recommended it as a strategy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> Trust me, it works. Um, yeah, so look, when, um, this is, this is fast forward. So when did Karma, when did, um, we first meet? That was 2000. 15. So, look, I've been back in Australia for probably um, eight or nine years yeah. at this point. So, I came back and did my degree in nursing initially yeah. and then my postgrad in international development and community development. Um, so, I was, I was back living and working in Tassie. Yeah. Um, and, again, linking it back to the regional communities, finding a partner in a regional community can be quite difficult. Yeah. Um, in terms of just statistically, you know, mm. finding someone who shares your interest, who you're attracted to, um, out of a much smaller pool of population, that can be quite difficult. Yeah. So, you know, at that point I was very connected to Tassie, um, mm-hmm. in terms of my spiritual home, my family was there. So that was the place I wanted to be physically at the time. Yeah. Um, but I was really struggling to find 
a relationship and I was at a point that I really wanted to have that as part of my life. Mm. So look, I'd been through the frustrations of online dating for for a few years and then I kind of got to the point and said, oh, this is just taking too much of my energy. I don't want to engage in this space anymore and I'll just accept that I'll probably live alone and unless um, the universe throws something my way. So, um, and unknown to me, my now husband um, in from Newcastle um, was kind of at the same point in his, in his life as well. Yeah. So, um, we'd both gone on to um, deactivate our online dating profiles and then we kind of had this match pop up with each other and I thought, oh, uh, will I, won't I, and, and just, uh, we just reached out um, as a large stitch effort to, to find somebody and as I say, the rest is history. We yeah. struck up a really good long distance relationship initially, me and Tassie and him in Newcastle. Um, and then probably within about 18 months, we recognised that we um, had a real probably spiritual and emotional connection with each other and that yep. it was worth giving it a go. Um, so that, um, and it was because I was working in healthcare and I can pretty much get a job anywhere. It's fairly easy for me. Yeah. Um, and at the time, my husband was just finishing off his PhD um, and works more in environmental health and safety. So it needs to be somewhere a little bit more industrial like Newcastle. So yeah. it was decided that I'd move up here yeah. um, and we'd start a new life. And, and yeah, we got married in 2018. So yeah. together five years, married for two and a bit. Yes. Fun. It is fun. Um, but how, like, how did long distance go? That's a... Yeah, look, I think it works to a point. Yeah. And then, then you've got to either give it a go um, in person or you, or you don't. So I think our threshold was probably after 12 months, you yeah. start to get to the point where, well, yeah, we know we've got a connection, but we know we've got enough in common to give this a go. Yeah. So then it was like, well, we need to actually meet, be, try and build a life together yeah. um, and see how that goes. So you kind of got to reach a point where it says, yep, there's enough there to give this a go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of travel though. Yeah, there's a lot of travel. So Tazi to Nui. Can you imagine now too with COVID? I mean, what if, I hadn't considered that. Yeah. Um, like, let us know. <laughs> let us know if you're in a long distance relationship during COVID. Especially, yeah. imagine if it was like Victoria and like oh Queensland God. or something like that. Like, it would be... Yes. You'd, that's when you have to commit to yeah, yeah. being in a relationship together, living together. Um, <laughs> um, how is your, like, the interracial marriage and all of that? Yes, again, really unexpected and um, amazing experience. So, yeah. my partner is from Nigeria yeah. originally, and he came out here to Australia in 2012 yeah. initially. Um, so relatively newcomer to Australian culture and society. Um, it, it's been a really wonderful and enriching experience, but also challenging at times, particularly in the in the early parts of the relationship. I think the the first uh, and, and the first thing that we came to know from probably from the queer community experience is that we were at different points in terms of our level of um, self-acceptance and how we were out in the world and 
and and feeling really comfortable about our identity and our yeah. sexuality. So I think that's one thing to be really mindful of with people coming from other cultures as well. Yeah. So Nigeria is an amazing place, but it's also a very challenging place to be a member of a queer community. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of um, cultural and family norms that essentially it's, uh, you know, you wouldn't be accepted yeah. if you were out and gay. Uh, in Nigeria, particularly, if you're a man, you're expected to be married by th- age 30, if not willing to advance to age 30. Um, and, and if not, then, you know, eyebrows are raised and you'd be asked by every second person that you know why you're not married yet and when you're having children. So there's this yeah. huge pressure to have um, a heterosexual relationship and to start a family. That's very much the cultural norm. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure if you don't fit into that mould. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and again, you know, Nigeria is an awesome place, but it's also still catching up in terms of um, LGBTQ rights as well. So in the south of Nigeria, it's being homosexual is still imprisonable for 10 years. So you'll go to jail for 10 years. Still now. Still now. Yeah. Yeah. And in the north of the country, there's actually the death penalty um, in place if you are caught in a homosexual act. So it's quite a, a dangerous place to be yeah. a queer person. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so my partner came initially to Australia on education visa to do his PhD. Yeah. Um, and after he was here for a while, particularly things back in Nigeria sort of digressed a bit. There was some more laws brought in and there was a lot of persecution happening um, around queer community in Nigeria. So he applied um, for a refugee um, protection visa um, because essentially it was unsafe for him to to travel back to and live in in Nigeria. So, um, you know, his experience growing up was very different to mine um you know same themes you know that internalized sense of shame and unworthiness which is so common particularly amongst our community but um really with with no form of positive influence about um uh, you know what it means to be queer and, and how that's okay so we were at very different places psychologically. Yep. Um, and that took a bit of adjustment because um, I kind of felt in when the relationship started like I was being asked to go back in the closet a bit. So, you know, it was very selective about what we couldn't post on Facebook because mm-hmm. my husband had a lot of fear about, um, you know, people finding out that he was gay and he wasn't ready for that. Um, you know, how we present in public yeah. when we're going out to meet with people, um, holding hands and all, all of that kind of stuff that you probably take for granted if you're entering perhaps with someone with a very similar experience to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was interesting and we, we worked through that really easily and it was around very much me respecting his journey mm. and supporting him to to become comfortable Um, and he's done an amazing job in a short period of time and he's quite comfortable with his sexuality now and yeah um, well five years yeah 
Yeah, so, well, five years we've been together and he's been here since 2012, so yeah. it's a bit, bit longer than that. So, um, so he'd been on, on a huge, huge journey. And um, I, I think the other thing as well is, again, it helped me get outside of my privileged white man mindset. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't fully understand the challenges that... Um, you know, people of colour face uh, in our country and in other countries until I started my relationship. I mean, I think one of the first things we were, we were walking somewhere, I think, and then we just heard these monkey noises being made. And so I didn't even think anything of it. And, and Karma turned and said, well, they're, they're making that reference to me. They're saying that I'm a monkey because I'm African. Um, you know, so we've, yeah. we've been on the street or we've been out in cars and then we hear people making monkey noises as a racial slur towards somebody yeah. of Af- African dis- descent. And that was just not in my frame of reference. Mm. I had no, no appreciation for what that experience was like, um, you know. And I think to be, Af- to, you know, be Nigerian, to be gay mm. and to have had a refugee background it's like you know you're ticking about three minority boxes there yeah <laughs> so you know that's a huge difference to to my lived experience yeah um you know and and look i've got such a lot of admiration for my husband and, and even things like um applying for jobs i mean I mean, he's highly skilled. He had a PhD, had yeah. an undergraduate degree, had work experience. Um, but you know, we we were really struggling to even just get job interviews for entry level positions as well. Um, and it was interesting because we had his photo and his full name on the resume, and we said, "Well, let's just use your nickname and remove the photo and see if you get any more callbacks." And we did. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you can't see my face right now. <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah. But that's that's a reality for yeah. so many people. Um, mm. That there is, and I don't know if it's always conscious either, Tim. I think that there's this subconscious racial bias that a yeah. lot of people aren't perhaps aware of. But then there's overt racism as well. It's yeah. It's certainly very much. Uh, a common experience and in fact when that started happening we thought you know is this just us and I did a review of some of the academic literature and yeah they've they've actually done studies where they've had um, people from um, culturally diverse backgrounds to submit job applications ones with um, their birth name and photo and then ones without a photo and an anglicized name exactly the same credentials and experience just a different name and no photo and it's, it's a huge difference it's something like a 60 percent increase in in callbacks for the anglicized name versus their birth name so there's a lot of a lot of literature out there which demonstrates that bias oh wow yeah that's disgusting mm-hmm. um I'm in shock. Um. <laughs> but look, I, I mean, things things are changing. Um, slowly. Slowly, yeah. yes. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is out mm. there now, which I think is, is good that we've got some increased visibility around that. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, thinking about Akon's work, we're very conscious of that increased minority stress with people from queer community, 
um, who also identify as uh, having maybe the um, identify as being from Africa or Aboriginal is mm. that um, their experience is tougher. Yeah, much tougher um, yeah. than us privileged white guys. Mm. Yeah, I. I'm sorry. I'm still so shocked about the CV <laughs> situation. Um, yeah. Your wedding. Uh, My wedding. Yes. Um, how was it? That was amazing. Big, yeah. small, medium. Medium. Again, that was a really interesting one because I had never thought that I'd have a wedding. Yeah. Um, but when the marriage equality bill came through, it was just, it, it was just evident. We'd both said to each other, "Look, if it gets passed, we'd, make, we'd already made a commitment. We'd made our own commitment to each other. We said, yep, we're going to have for us what works for us was a monogamous relationship for yep. life. That was what we chose to do. Yep. Um, other people choose different relationships, and that's mm. equally, equally validated. Um, but you know when, and we decided, look, if it passes, we'll do it. We'll get married. Um, I think for us it was an important statement for um, marriage equality mm. and to be a representation of that. Um, again, that was I'm so proud of my husband for that because if you can think of where he was at on his journey, yeah. and then I'm saying, okay, let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so he was amazing. He just, so we met each other in the middle. I kind of have a tendency to let things grow and get bigger than they need to be. So <laughs> I was like, we'll do this and we'll do this and we'll have this many people. And he's like, sweetie, can we just tone it down a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so we did. We, we toned it down to a smaller gathering. Um, we got married in the Sydney Chinese Gardens, which yeah. was amazing. Oh, wow. And, and we had our reception on a cruise at night on Sydney Harbour, which was just awesome. But, um, yeah, it was good. It was, again, it brought up, it was interesting because it still brought up some subconscious anxiety and bias for me. Because mm. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to stand up with my fiancé in front of a room people who I know that love me. But this is the most public declaration you can yeah. to affirm your sexuality is to stand up and do that in front of people. Yeah. Um, and I think on the day he was so much calmer than I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was like freaking down. I was like, what is this stressful time? Um, well, that's probably because I did all the organising. That might have been why. I was <laughs> yeah. <scared. laughs> But, um, no, if you are listening, Dale, you've got other skills. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> More um, important skills. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but it was, it was a really lovely and really affirming experience um, yeah. for both of us. I think um, Karma is, my husband is, has a big, um, his church community is a big part of his life. So half of the room was our, were his friends from church, or our friends from church. Yeah. And then there was my family and friends. So never, if you'd said to me in 1996, 97, that, you know, in a couple of decades time, I'm going to be standing in front of a group of people, your friends, your family, and um, people from a community of faith who are going to affirm your marriage um, to an amazing Nigerian man, I would have nowhere near have mm. believed what they had to say. It was just so far beyond what I thought was possible for me in life. Yeah. Um, 
but you know as you can see from this conversation it's probably a culmination of that experience from adolescence until that point yeah um, and, and now our relationships can continues to to grow and and strengthen them but um yeah it was a very affirming experience for yeah. both of us really that's amazing mm. oh on that because I'm so happy that they're in love. <laughs> um, I think we should start wrapping this up. Sure. Um, this, we've got so many more topics that we can discuss, <laughs> um, I'm sure. And I'll be back 100%. Um, is there any last little things that you want to say to anybody that's listening to the podcast? Oh, look, I'm just really thankful for this opportunity to have a chat with you. Um, you know, in my role as regional manager for Icon Hunter, I feel very privileged um, you know, my experience is one of a multitude of experience out there. Everybody's different. Everybody's got a different experience. There are some of those common themes that we can all share and relate to around the queer experience, particularly in, in regional areas. So I think my message to the listeners would be, you know, if you are at that point in your life is know that you're not alone. Um, you know, know that things do change, you grow as an individual, that there is love and support there, um, and that there are lots of organisations, including ACON, that can help. Um, mm. So reach out, you know, if you need connection to community that you don't have, if you need some support for, for, for mental health, um, reach out, and because yeah. um, help, help is there. We're a strong community, we're a resilient community, um, and I think we're in a really uh, exciting phase regionally in terms of, of where com- where queer community is going. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Um, and again, I'll put everything in the notes on all the links to ACON and all their amazing work they are doing for the community. But finally, thank you so much for joining me on Yes Queen. Um, I certainly have learned so much from this and I feel like I know you so much more now, which is so great. But thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Yas Queen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and tell your friends and family. If you have any questions about anything and everything, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Yas Queen Podcast and send them through. Once a month, we'll compile all the questions and have them answered by queers and allies from around the country. Until next time, my name is Timberlina, top shelf talent. Pour yourself double. Peace out. Love you all.